Hope everyone is enjoying the summer heat. It's been super duper hot. Super duper hot all over the United States, all over Europe. I even heard some interesting news today before we start this True House Stories show that in Ibiza, for my people that are overseas that are tuning in, that the government has now, on the daytime parties, have clamped down. And, of course, the places like High and Pasha and Ushuaia are going to be able to keep doing their parties as usual. But the daytime parties are going to have licensing restrictions now. So they're killing the whole island of what made Ibiza the place. So we can only hope that it doesn't destroy the economy for the people that want to dance all day. But what can you do? It's things are changing constantly, and we always seem to have to work a new direction. It's like we're always fighting our way back, you know, and looking for new options. And then here comes the government with some new, with some new rules and regulations. You're not opening anymore. You're not doing a beach club. Some people, you know, that beach club is a big thing, you know, especially in an island like Ibiza. So that's why I wanted to go from the Valerics of the Spanish Islands, and then we're going to go to Puerto Rico, to a simulcast live in Puerto Rico. In the Dorado area, we got this guy. We got this guy. Let's put it like this. Welcome to True House Stories. I'm Lenny Fontana coming out of Nueva York, in the hottest place on Earth, which will soon end. But we are now in the illustrious month of August, so summer is almost wrapping up. But while it's still hot, we wanted to bring some more heat and some more people. And I always like to touch base with people that I feel very important. First of all, it took me time to find this gentleman. I worked with him in the 90s in, in the New Orleans area. And he's, he's a really great guy. And he had a lot of, let's put it like this, a lot of chutzpah for what we do. You know, in, in an area where he was going against all the odds. Okay. Now, 1994 comes around and he's waiting tables, if I remember correctly, and working with his mom for an accounting firm. So possibly he was going to become an accountant, but I'll let him tell us that. And someone has this idea to take him to a a rave or a small party and he sees this and he goes, I guess, you know, there wasn't that many people there at the time. And he's th- saying, man, this people need to know about this, you know, and that's the bug that happens to a lot of us. Or you walk into famous clubs and you see the Sodom and Gomorrah moment where hedonism is happening and life changes within two seconds. All right. So I'm going to read something here that a friend of our Shari had had found Disco Donnie who I'm going to be bringing up and he always does it Disco Donnie presents is considered one of the godfathers of the US of A electronic dance music scene and for the last 27 years become one of the top dance music promoters globally all right what does that say you know what i mean you go from i get screwed to becoming one of the top guys in America, right? Amazing. Mona, welcome to the show. True House Stories brings to you 
Disco Donnie, all the way from Puerto Rico, baby. What's up? What's, What's up, Lenny? Thanks for the, the long intro. I appreciate <laughs> it. Nice seeing you. Donnie, it's a pleasure having you here. And like I told everybody just now, it was a, took me a minute to find you. I know you're around. It's to getting to you that you, we can see you and hear you. I've got, yeah, I got a lot of security and uh, lots of layers, a lot, lot of people, lot, lot of people around me. You do, yeah. I had to talk to a few people to get to you, so it's yeah. like, don't don't tell Donnie I gave you my number. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. I got, I, I found out who that was. So they're, <laughs> you know, what I'm saying, they're already out. We did, we did it New York style. Yep, yeah, yeah. I got a guy. I got a guy that knows a guy. Yeah, exactly. Well, welcome to the show, Diane. Thank you again. Um, how is, first of all, before we get into how's everything been going? Because everybody wonders COVID, coming back, dealing with the new situation. What's it like for you now, post everything? Well, I mean, a lot, we do a lot of work in the South. So coming out of COVID was like a little bit different than I think a lot of places. So, uh, you know, once we kind of made it through and everything started opening up. I mean, business was definitely, uh, it was, it was definitely booming. Um, and then, you know, we had a couple of starts and stops stuff started peaking. Um, you know, last, I don't know, it, it's been an adjustment, right? Because people's, people's habits changed. Um, we, as a scene, like basically we always had people leaving as they aged out or they found other interests. Um, and, the problem was during COVID, we didn't have that. We didn't have that flow of new people finding out sh about shows and coming in. So we kind of missed. We're missing like a generation right now, um, and you can really tell like in the the ages of the people that go to the show. So people people left the scene, but nobody knew was coming in. Um, so we're you know we spent like the last like the eighteen months coming out of COVID trying to rebuild that, and uh, you know it, it's been rough on the financial side with the everything being more expensive and not being able to keep up with inflation. Uh, you know, you plan these events a year in advance and everything else costs, everything costs 30% more by the time you produce a show. It's kind of hard to bait that into a, um, to a price when you're just trying to get people to come out to the show. So it definitely lasts. It, it, it's been some, some rough times, but, we have a lot of good things going on, and I feel like I'm I'm really positive about the future. I mean, that's the only way a promoter can be. You always got to think about next year is going to be my year. So, You're projecting already for 24. I'm, I'm projecting, projecting. So no, but we the stuff we have, we're definitely, um, you know, we're definitely it's definitely looking good. So I feel better about where we are. It just it took a while to come out of that the out of the COVID fog. Um, after that first big start, um, it just basically took a while to just cut, get us in a position where, you know, where where we can control the cost and um, and basically make shows happen. But are you finding it difficult with the owners to get them to feel comfortable with spending money and stuff, or is it just getting it over the line? Period. The whole thing. What uh, like the on the club show stuff? Yeah, yeah I mean, the, you know the on the club show stuff, I mean, that's still, you know, that's still doing decent. And yeah, I mean, these guys want to fill their venue. So, I mean, they're fine with spending the money. Um, 
a lot of times it's it's my it's my money um but sometimes uh it's not but uh you know on the festival side that's become the real challenging goal and that's where you have the most risk and you know the most uh, you know that's the scariest part because in a, in a thousand person club you're not gonna you know you're not gonna lose your house um, no, you know, you know, people don't understand that the kind of money you're into when you right. put to they, they have no idea. They right. have no idea what you're talking. You know, stick your hand through. Oh, uh, no, in the through the slot, through the slot, right there. No, the slot, right there. Be careful, because there may be an alligator. To cut. <laughs> no, stick your hand through the slot. Yeah, there you go. Now do the door. The door. Yeah. No, do the handle. La puerta. Okay. Sorry. This is live TV. I had to get a beer. Good. Welcome back. So, he's, and he's drinking cerveza a la playa. Medalla. Which, which one? Medalla. Oh, he's drinking Medalla beer. Today's broadcast to you all is brought to you by Madalya Beer, everyone. And Ozempic. And Ozempic. Yeah. We got so, sponsors. So, yes. So, again, um, as I was saying, most people don't really know when you mention your money and how much these type of festivals, the, the production cost before you even turn the key on, you know, before you even turn on how much you're into already, you know? Yeah, I mean, and it, I think my first show probably cost, um, you know, who knows, five, probably like 500 bucks. Back and, in the day, back yeah, in the day. Yeah, yeah, that was production, DJs, door. I, well, I, I was the door, I carried the speakers in. I might have DJed as well, um, you know, and but uh, to, to go to fast forward 30 years later and you're doing a show that costs $20 million dollars. Um, it's not really something that I originally had signed up for, right? Like losing 500 bucks, uh, is, is, would, would have been painful in the nineties, but it wouldn't be the end. Uh, so yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely the whole, the whole game has changed. And that's, and thank you very much. See, see what I'm saying in the early part of the nineties, a $500 investment, we set you back a few weeks. Now you're talking about a twenty million dollar investment can destroy your whole situation. Yeah, this goes wrong. Okay, this makes it hard to sleep at night. You know, <laughs> how big of a staff do you have now, comparing to what you had when I met you back in the nineties? I didn't. I used to kind of when in the nineties. I mean, we I had people that worked with me, um, but I didn't really have a, a. I guess I had a team, but I didn't really have any employees. Um, so. Uh, and now I think we're teams by like full time, like over 20. So, but I work with a lot of different partners and they have their own people. So, I mean, we have a, we have a, a big team, but I mean, a small team, but they do a lot. Um, and they multitask a lot of different things. I put a lot of stuff on their plates. So, um, yeah, but I used to do everything myself and I learned at, at some point that that wasn't a, a, a winning formula. It was hard to give up, but I'm glad I did. Gotcha. So, yeah, because you have to give up the baton, and it's a scary feeling at first because you're so used to making sure things go a certain way, and then you have to say, okay, here you go, and hope everything works out. And I guess, as you've seen, when you're running that kind of operation, 
you have to have the right partners and the right staff around you. Yeah, Otherwise, that's the most important part, actually. So right. it was just it's just hard when you do every, when you used to do everything yourself, and then yep. Once I get finally gave up the, the like the bookings, that was like the biggest like weight on my off my shoulders because uh, you know before when I first started there was maybe there was like one two three big agents and um, and then basically they all started hiring now all of a sudden that that big agent had ten people working in their office and you know and then that another one had five and the other one had five. And they were all calling me all times of the day. And I, it was just, I never expanded. They expanded first. And then I realized that I needed to get some help too. But I didn't want to give up that control and those relationships. Um, so that was like the, that was the toughest part for me. Right. Okay. Let's go right to the first question. And, right. I, and this is the wonderful thing about this show. And I always ask from all different walks of life, how does music find you, Donnie, as a young kid, or you find the music? Because this is important to where this journey goes. The music, how did it find me? I think, um, well, as a young kid, I was basically, uh, you know, when I started off, I mean, we're talking about, we had the old phonograph. Like, it wasn't even, it, it, it was like from the 1950s, I remember, in the house. And my grandmother was playing, like, all the 30s, 40s music. Um, so... Uh, you know, I guess that was my kind of introduction into music uh, was listening to those records. So I know all those I know all those old songs. And the kids wouldn't my kids don't know any old songs. Um, so uh, I think that was like the, the start of my musical thing. And then my dad was a uh, like a big Bob Dylan fan. He, he played the guitar. He wrote lyrics. Uh, so he was like basically. I guess always uh, he had the eight tracks. So that was kind of like my, that was like the next step. And then, uh, then he was also a lawyer, but he decided he didn't want to be a lawyer and that he didn't actually want to be, have a family. <laughs> so he, he disappeared for, I don't know, maybe like I didn't see him for like a year or 18 months. And when he turned back up, he was a, he was a disco DJ um, at a club and his name was Disco Jim. So I would go, that's when I started spending time with him again. I would go over there and they had all kinds of, they actually had, uh, this was kind of right when MTV was going on. So he wasn't really playing disco music anymore. Um, they were going more into like alternative music. And so, and they had, I mean, and they had, thousands and thousands of uh, vinyl records uh, in the office. So I was able to dig through those and, you know, and uh, learn mu music that way, different styles. It, would, it was like a lot of alternative stuff. And then I got into, I think in high school, I kind of got into like this, uh, my, my friend had an older brother and he was turned us on to, to a lot of different styles of music. And so I got into like the, the REMs, the whole Athens sound. Um, we actually in high school would go to Athens and go to shows there. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was kind of like my, that was like the basis of my musical. Now we had, we did now, if I'm looking at it, you know, we, 
we went to the New Order concert at, at Tulane at the college there when I was in uh, when I was in high school. Uh, we were listening to Yaz. Uh, we were, uh, but I would go to see Red Hot Chili Peppers in '85 and stuff. So I mean, we were all over the place. Deftones. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot of bands that came through New Orleans, and in New Orleans there was no real uh, drinking ages. I mean, basically, if you were in high school, you could get into the bar. So we were able to see a lot of bands uh, when I was shouldn't have been able to be in these places. Good. So, yeah. We need you. I had a wide range of uh, I had a, a wide palette and it all kind of went into one bucket. It wasn't so it, anything that I liked. That's just kind of it was something that I liked. So it's basically at that point, you're trying to you got to it's like finding your tribe. I always look at it that way. You know, you're finding what is your tribe, where you, where this is taking you. Yeah, but we could back then. You didn't. It was everything's kind of like basically everybody like just likes one kind of style now, and they stick with that. I mean, I kind of liked everything, right? So uh, it was definitely I was, but yeah, I was finding where what where I wanted to to uh, move to, which tribe I wanted to be in, I guess. And that's the way it was in the eighties and that in the eighties into the late eighties, there was all kinds of music being played. It wasn't just one sound when you went out to a club. You heard, like you said, soft cell erasure. You could hear chili peppers across the board and maybe maybe later house music record. Yeah, right. maybe, yeah. You know, it's like it's just that's the way it was back then. Yeah. No, I mean we would go and they they would have like the, uh, they would have like the the service industry night, and they guys would kind of start out with a like hip hop Craig Mack or something, and then uh, and then eventually, yeah, they would work their way into the dance music. So, but everybody was everybody was jamming the whole time. So we just it was building up. So, did you start DJing yet at that time, or you were playing around yet? Because I, no, I I wasn't really. I was like a, a bedroom DJ per se. Um, so, and I kind of found out real fast that it basically, um, it costs a lot of time and money. Like my, my roommate in, uh, bought turntables and just imagine like, uh, there wasn't a lot of people at the time that had turntables. Uh, and so we just had a, 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 a carousel, a carousel of uh, local guys coming over all night playing all night like nonstop. it was it was crazy and you know spending money you know you know it's expensive to, those records come in what every friday to the record store and everybody's in line trying to fight for the for the the, the new records and they're spending all their money and they're gonna get some real dogs in there it's like but you know buying every like every video game or something like that i mean just couldn't do it so i just realized real quick that and and look, and at the time, I will say this, that the, you know, when I first started being a promoter, the promoter would make $500 and, uh, and the DJ, I would pay the DJ like a hundred bucks. So I was like, why am I going to do all this time and, and, and spend money when I could just be the promoter? So it wasn't, I, a, yeah. Yeah. So, so you were never really the guy that wanted to be the entertainer. You wanted to be the guy that brings the entertainment. Yeah, I'm not a big on stage person, and uh, you know that takes a special person to be in front of. I don't think people realize 
uh, it just takes a different kind of person to be in front of all those people. And, uh, and, and it's just like, I just didn't feel like that was me. I'm more like a background type of guy. Well, that's why they, everybody has their position when they're doing these type of things. You know, everybody right. has their place. You're not, you like you said, I'm not going to be this. For example, I'm not a singer. You know, I, I would never think I would get a microphone and start singing and think I'm going to be singing for the crowd. Never happened. But at least I know I can DJ, I can make records. And I've always done that as best as I could. Yeah. It's worth No, it. I mean, I, um, yeah, I can't sing. I can't, I don't have, I have zero talent actually. So. Yeah, I had to just find my lane. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true because you have a talent to see something that can work, and that's a talent self. So before we get to that part, so you, you your dad was Disco Jim? Yep. Is that why you made yourself Disco Donnie? I didn't make myself Disco Donnie. This is like, uh, yeah, you can't. I don't think you can give yourself your own nickname. I guess you can. But, <laughs> you know, back in the old rave days, everybody had like some kind of fake name. Because the 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 DEA was on to you or whatever, right? right. So I had like some kind of secret name. I can't remember what the reasoning was, but um, I just know a lot of people with silly names. But I had uh, I caught on right away that I was going to like uh, once I just saw it. Now I started going to thrift stores every day, and this is when you could score. I mean, you could get great stuff for like twenty five cents, right? And, like you were right. like, and this was. You, this was stuff like, yeah, the bell bottoms and everything like that. So, and then I had shirts of my dad's that, you know, said disco on them. So originally my, they, people were calling me disco. And then when I first did my first party, um, I was, I named the company uh, Disco Productions. And so, and then somebody else put the Donnie in there somewhere later and it just kind of, it kind of stuck. Donnie, but the funny part about it is you're using a name at the time in America where it was a name that was yucky because Disco had died. You remember that. I know you remember that. Yeah, but I thought it was kind of, uh, I remember Disco sucks and Disco's dead. Shit, but, yeah. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember, and people, I remember people telling me not to, like the first person I worked with, they were like, you can't use that name. And I'm like, I'm using that name. So, and it kind of comes, it all comes full circle, right? So, um, I, uh, you know, I was a fan of, uh, I mean, I, I guess it's all it, disco music and dance music is connected. So, I mean, it was like the original. So, I, you know, I, I, I thought it, I thought it went well, but it was hard at first for people to put the two together. Sure. All right. Take us to that first night out come on now that who, first who, night who, call, who calls you to tell you yo you want to go to this spot or whatever what no i was no so i was waiting tables and um on the weekends and then basically i was i was out of school and you know people just said you want to go to a party and i'm like sure uh what kind they're like oh it's a rave i'm like okay perfect i think i went to something like some kind of of i had gone to something similar in while well, I was in college, but it was more like about a uh, there was like some S and M stuff going on. So I was like, okay, well, this is not my. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with S and M people, but I don't. You can't offend anyone these days. But um, so, but yeah, I mean, I just I went into this event and I and I just saw all these different groups of people all together in the same room, 
And at the same time, I was having, I was engaged to be married. And I was kind of wondering, like, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Like, is this it? I'm going to work at my mom's accounting firm and take that over. And so I was questioning, uh, I was just questioning my place in the world, I guess, per se. Like, what is, is this going to be at my everything, every day uh, type of thing? And just when I walked in that door and just saw what was going on and there wasn't a lot of people there, but it was just like, it was magical to me. And, you know, I was just basically like, I was just blown away thinking, you know, why didn't I know about this? And I think it was, to me, it was kind of, although they were considering themselves like an underground scene, I almost thought it was criminal that people didn't, that they didn't do a better job of pushing this out because I knew a large percentage of people that probably would enjoy it and would be, you know, welcomed into that scene. And that's kind of what, when I walked in, I saw that and I was like, okay, I'm going to help these guys out. So that's kind of was this, it was just a, that was the start of it. I was just going to be, I was just doing it as a hobby. So what were you going to school for? Did you finish school yet? Or, or Yeah, I was out of school and I was working, um, I was working at my mom's accounting firm and I was supposed to take it over when she retired. She still hasn't retired. So um, I probably would be still sitting there like in, being the secretary or something. But um, so, yeah, I was supposed to wait, take wait, that. Wait, over. Is she your accountant or you have a yeah. separate? <laughs> no, I'm an accountant. No, no, I'm saying, is she your accountant for your business? No, that didn't go well. That, um, yeah, she she helps me out. She worries a lot. Let's put it that way. So, um, but yeah, I switched over. But so, yeah, I mean, basically, I just, yeah, I just thought I was missing something in my life. And then, you know, and I found it. So, and I wasn't trying to be a promoter. I wasn't trying to be, I wasn't trying to make money on it. I just was like, oh, this is something that, you know, I can enjoy and that makes me feel comfortable and that I don't be involved with. So I just started promoting, uh, picking up flyers from the door, not telling anybody. And people started noticing that I was out there, you know, pushing the scene and people, more people started coming. And then people started trying to hire me. And then it's and I didn't want money. I just wanted more people to come. I just wanted to do what somebody had done for me. And uh, of course people were like, I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you money. And they immediately like, this is your indoctrination into the scene. They immediately don't pay you or they screw you over. So now you're like, Oh, now I see what this is about. So that's when I started asking for, if somebody wanted me to help them, I started asking for half the door and, and I was still working. Uh, so it wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't making a living off of this, but that's kind of when I became a, a promoter. Aha. Uh -huh. But there's, was there anyone around you to use as a muse or you just had to go as you go? Like, in other words, paint the, paint the picture as you just, I'm going to try this. I'm going to do it. I don't know if it's going to work, but we're just going to try whatever. I mean, there was people like there was people like senior level people in the scene that had been doing it for a long time. And I was trying to gather as much information from them as possible to them. They didn't know who I was. Here comes some guy and he's asking a lot of questions. You know, everybody thought, 
everybody thought everybody's a cop. So, I mean, it was just, it was just different times. So, and it, the people didn't give up a lot of information because it was like the, it was like the mob back then. Right. And nobody wanted you to move in on their territory. So I kind of had to, I, you know, I just watched and saw what people were doing. I went to other cities, um, but kind of learned on your own. You know, you had, I mean, I made a lot of mistakes, um, but, you know, there was no, there was no textbook for this. So, so there was no Italian gangsters coming up to you saying, I want a brown paper bag of some. No, no. There was some people acting like gangsters, but uh, they all ended up going away. So, but yeah, it wasn't the New York style stuff. Talk about that all the time here. I talk about how, Back in the day, you used to see these guys come in. You knew that they were crooked, and they would just come and collect and leave. You yeah. Know? Was that kind of like what happened in New Orleans? Or no, I never got – I don't think I, I was in that, ever in that position. I mean, there was definitely some nefarious characters um, walking around and, 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 and doing stuff, but I think they were uh, – they had their own – they were doing their own thing. They weren't coming after me. Because when people start seeing success, that means money. And when money's being made, everybody wants a taste of it. You know, they want to drink from that glass. You know, everybody wants a piece of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. There was definitely um, some of that going on as well. Well, you also spoke to me before before he came on, and he said that since there was really no way to know things, that they were taking trips to other cities as well to see what was going on to get information or get cassettes of DJs to bring the talent. Cause you brought a lot of us first time to those areas, sneak me, many of us that came to work with you back in the day. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, this is the day myself. This is like pre internet. I mean, it was a baby. So uh, it was definitely, uh, we did have record stores and people would ship flyers down there. So we're looking at seeing who's in, we're emulating like the flyers from New York or Philadelphia or something in the Northeast stuff from LA. So, you know, that's kind of where we were like, Oh, look, this guy's headlining this show in New York. He must be big. And then, uh, yeah, we started, we had to travel. We went to, I went to buzz. I went to, you remember the park rave madness shows in New York on Randall's Island. Um, I drove up there. Like I think we drove nonstop. We stopped at buzz. And we were picking up flyers the whole way and, and just trying to uh, and listening to going to see a bunch of different artists and stuff. So we kind of emulated those northeastern scenes um, to kind of get New Orleans started. But I didn't know shit. I didn't know shit about <laughs> anything or there was no information about anything. Wait, wait, let me be clear. How much did you really know? You Not know zero, less than zero. So, I mean, it was... It, it was self-taught. So like, I didn't know anything about what style of music. It didn't even, it didn't matter. It's just like what, about what, what I thought sounded good. So and I didn't know who the artists were. I mean, you just, you didn't know, like, you don't know who was, who you heard that song at the party, every DJ played it. And then, but you didn't know who actually made it. Uh, and so, I mean, you had a, it was a, it was definitely a big learning curve to figure out, who was, you know, with the scene and what was going on and, and to learn about the music. Aha. Uh -huh. And, and com competition wise, who was around you there at that time? When I started, 
there was like um I mean there was a bunch of people doing stuff, but maybe say I I moved up pretty fast. Like the the first guy I worked with that you know that he um you know he said he was gonna pay me and uh, I got like I got like six hundred people and he moved out of town like the next day. So and he, you know he gave me like uh, my payment was like two hits of uh he was two hits of ecstasy, you know. So I was like, oh, you know, I did all this for that. So it wasn't really a real payment per se. Um, and then uh, the next guy I was working with was all was above me and stuff and and like and higher in the scene. He had been around, he knew more, he was a DJ, and he we did a show together. And I went to drop off the artist at the hotel and he took all the money and, and moved to Houston. So in a short amount of time, I graduated from junior assistant promoter to uh, the, the top promoter in New Orleans based on like hard work and also people being people leaving and being greedy. So, well, you know, I always say, <laughs> you gotta learn real fast where the greed is, right? Yeah, learn fast. I'm still, I'm still bad at contracts, but hey, what, I'm st- I'm making it. I'm happy. Uh, that's, yeah. on, that's on them if they steal money, not on me. No, I hear you. Keep it going now. So, of course, you're dealing with only three or four DJ agents in the United States at that time. Maybe five, if there is at that time, that are really well known. Um, because this is early times as things are starting to develop and people are trying to find different places to send their DJs. So there's a thing about, you know, a trust factor. You got to trust who you're bringing and you, and they got to trust that you could put on the right show for people. Cause this is very early when you're doing these things at that time. It's not like now full rider, limousines, the DJs would sleep on my couch and they'd stay like two or three days and, I mean, you know, the first thing they say when they got the plane is, "Where's? Let's go to the strip club." You know, so yeah, right. You know, yeah, yeah, it's different, and um, it's yeah. Now that they've tried come in with ten people on a private plane, um, and maybe I talked to them for like I would take them to dinner and we would become friends. And now, you know, so I, of course, I'm also double their age of the of the artist now, right? So we don't have as much in common as as back then in the in the nineties. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a totally different world on your, uh, so on this journey as before SFX comes and all that stuff, there's a lot of things that went on to get you to that level of becoming, uh, a, let's put it like this, a world-class promoter because it takes time to build the story. Where does it start to really take off from you as you starting to get the momentum? Like, what was the changing moment? you i think when the guy when this the second guy left because he had control of this of the state palace leader and so uh, he had the relationship with them so when he left town um i was able to uh me and we one of my other partners uh were able to secure an exclusive deal at that venue and that is what kind of jump-started the whole the whole new orleans scene because we were able to do, I, I could book artists eight months in advance because I had a legal venue um, right on the cut, right on the edge of a French Quarter. 
that could go to 8 a.m. And so that's where we got into this place where people knew that uh, the show was going to go off. And that's when people really started traveling. So that was kind of like in that 96 time frame. And then we, you know, we basically could do, we could do 18 shows a year there and do five, 6,000 people. Um, and so that's when the whole thing just turned into this big giant like machine. And that's, the th that's the thing. Now you have an establishment, you're doing X amount of shows. It's working. How do you keep it fresh at that time? You know, I mean, luckily I was in, I lived in New Orleans, so uh, you could go, there, there's fresh things happening every night somewhere there. So I would take that and you know, I was going out every night promoting and I would go to wherever people were, but anything that I saw that I thought was, could be interesting to, to someone or something that they hadn't seen before, something that somebody in from bumfuck Mississippi or wherever, like that something that they would never get to see. I was able to say, I think I had a blank canvas. So I'd bring all the DJs in and then, which would be the, the, the hook. And then I would show them this alternative stuff that they, that I thought was interesting and that they would never get to see in their town because I, you know, I, I lived in new Orleans. I was able to expose them to that. So when you mean alternative, exactly what would you, an example, what would you do for one? Uh, you did like, uh, I mean, like in the one, uh, one, like at 4 a.m. one time, we turned on the, turned the lights all on. You know, everybody's doing this, like all the strobes and brought in like a, a, uh, like a Baptist choir and they sang Amazing Grace. I mean, just something like silly, like something like that, that you wouldn't normally get at a normal show. Um, it just kind of really changed the dynamic of what we were doing. So, and it, it, it became weird because people, there were things that we were doing and, and people wouldn't even notice. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't even mention it. Like it just was, it came like part of the normal, uh, the normal part of the show, like oh. the we're doing. So, so you'd be actually creating circle, circus Soleil before circus Soleil became. We I was doing a lot of stuff. I had, I had this like. This guy, he was, I had this old guy, he was like 90 something. And he, uh, he had a voice box and he was a magician. So it was kind of people and people were all fucked up. They don't know what's going on. And we stopped the music and this guy's telling, you know, doing his voice box and doing a, <laughs> doing magic tricks. And it, I remember saying that too. It's a, it's a little bit of a goof on him, but it's also like, this is something you guys should see. This guy's out here putting it out here. You know, you're not going to get to see this in your hometown. Take it in. You'll never see this again. That's right. Take uh, it in. I'm trying to think. We had like uh, puppet shows. I mean, the, it, it was endless. The, the, this, the biggest part for me was like trying to discover new things to do at shows. And, I, you know, I, a lot of times the stuff we did, we, we made fun of ourselves, um, which I always, which was like my favorite part. You know, I'd write weird stuff on the flyers and, uh, yeah, so I was so I was always kind of making fun of the scene just to keep it. People took it, take it real serious, and it's more to me. It's more about having fun, and that's kind of what I was trying to, what I was 
trying to show people. They didn't always get the joke, but I did. Gotcha. Um, from there, would you say you're responsible for the gosh damn glow stick problem that we had? In- <laughs> and because uh, I remember going to work at your rave and watching these, I'm going to say younger dancers with the damn pacifiers in my going. Yeah, I, I don't say I. I think that was a multi-pronged attack from people uh, from all different scenes. Uh, we definitely had a lot of that. It wasn't like my favorite. Um, it, it wasn't something I enjoyed, especially the pacifier shit. I mean, the glow sticks. I get it, right? I have glow. I had glowing stuff, and I don't know about the doing light shows for people. I mean, I never really was into that, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was like a that was a societal problem at the time. Uh, and it just it was to me, I understand why people were doing it, but it was it wasn't a great look. OK, so then that allows me to now go to the next segment, which is this is very important, where you challenged our first Amer- amendment in the United States. And I remember seeing Michelle Levy saying to me, you're not going to believe this, you know, you remember Donnie you worked for? Yeah. He got arrested. And that was yeah. it. So, yeah. So let's uh, talk about what happened at that time and what year exactly was that? That was, was that was in August of 2000. And yeah, people have to remember, it's that's 23 years ago. So, I mean, it's a different, we're living in a different world. So if you talk about what people's perception of, of drugs uh, those days versus drugs these days, I mean, it's a big, it's a big move, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, the DA came in and they raided the venue, and uh, it was a, they, they, they had a theory that, that I was the one selling, and the venue, me and the venue were selling drugs. Um, we were loading them in before the show and selling them from backstage, and so they raided this show before the show. Uh, and uh, they got one joint off a bartender. So we actually weren't selling drugs, um, at, which was in there, which was their main, their main thought that people were coming to these shows, all these people traveling from all these miles away to, to, to buy drugs. But, you know, they, they didn't know people were, they didn't understand like the DJ culture, that people were coming for the artist. And that's something where I have to say, you know, it's such a different time now to what it was then. Everything was so archaic back then. And they just didn't understand what this was all about. They didn't understand that there was never any fights at these type of venues. It was peace, love, and let's say rock and roll, but it was actually electronic. Peace, love, and electronic music, you know. And, of course, the drug culture was a big part of the game. Now, mind you, I know you weren't pushing that stuff. You were a viable promoter that really cared. I I can't say you pushed it, but, you know, maybe you helped make facilitate that you had the place to have these people enjoy that, you know, with it. It comes with the territory. It's like a balance. Better the drugs, better the music. Better the music, better the drugs. You know, that's how it worked back then. I wasn't judging anyone, so... You can't judge. That wasn't my my job. Was to put the show together and and bring and bring in the talent and um yeah. I mean, people are gonna do what they're gonna do, right? Yeah, you can't stop that. 
Right. So, yeah. So, yeah, you can't stop. Yeah. That's not for you to stop. Well, but, you got to try. You got to try to stop. But they're but not. The policeman, they're gonna do Mr. Policeman says to you, but you're supposed to be the one that controls it. Because you can't stop it. You have to be able to enforce some sort of governing power there to keep it under control. Right. And we were, you know, we were searching people, but we, I, I definitely, and I wasn't in charge of the security um, like like I am now uh, or like at the festivals and stuff, but uh, we could have done a better job for sure. But why did they come to you? Well, we were... You, you know, know what I'm we saying? Were, like, why you? It's There's a whole shitload of people involved in this why only you well we were big and consistent at the time and I, the guy f from what i read later was the the head of the da in new orleans was like basically went in front of congress and was trying to uh raise funds right and this was a test case so um and we did have we were early on with uh with a uh with dance safe and kind of like pushing out literature about you know drug using drugs safely, and uh, we also were early uh, adapters of having uh, paramedics on site. And at that time, those things were now it's basically viewed as a necessity for any festival. At the time, those things made us look uh, like we were guilty. Right, you're setting everything up as a state. Right. Just everybody do whatever they want. We got your ambulance right here. We take you to the. We take you to the hospital. Here's your literature on like, you know, hydrate. If you do, don't do drugs. But if you do them, you should drink water. You right. know, like, oh, here's your, here's the evidence right here. We just laid it out for them. So we were trying to be proactive and uh, it, it backfired. That's crazy, dude. Let me show some pictures to everybody. Take a slug of beer. Look at Donnie back in the day. Look at him back in the day hanging out. Yep. You know, this is this is the golden era of the nineties right before it's right before it's, and look at like, go back, go back. I want to see what this uh yeah, that's a good one. See, look at this. This is the after party. And I have I have the Miller pony, right? And then I also I'm double fisting with a bottle of Boone's farm. So I'm I was rolling deep and I'm sweating profusely here. See it, you're sweating. It must have been so humid. Because yeah. I don't know how humid it was down this there. Oh May. My God. this is May. And it's probably about 10 a.m. And I probably have partooken in something probably illegal, looks like, <laughs> from that look. Paraphernalia, right? You had, you had some paraphernalia. Not that I, I didn't sell it, but I did it. You had the gear. Go ahead. And then we got Tommy Sunshine. Yeah. his hair turned all gray. This is, that, that's like a brother for me. Uh, we definitely connected on a lot of levels back back in the day. And I'll let this one here go. Look at that. That's right. me. That's Pasquale and I. Mm -hmm. Looking good. And Pasquale went on to become a gigantic guy. Yeah, he did. I mean, he did well for himself, for sure. When I first started working with him, like in 98, 99, um, yeah, he was like third, I don't know, like in the in – the, on the LA scene, maybe it was like fourth or third on the, on the pecking order, right? They, they, uh, they wouldn't even, the agents, um, yeah, they would, they would go to other people before him. So, um, yeah, so that was, he definitely can't moved up. 
Okay. That's a, that's a tough, that's a real tough market to, to, to be LA? the top dog in. LA, LA's tough. Yeah. LA's you, gotta, like, you gotta, they're just born different there. Yeah. It's, it's a different world. Yeah. All right. So, so now you're in the, the millennium happened. You're in the 2000s. You're still doing what you're doing. And yep. of course, we all talk about things change in the, in the, in the new 2000s. When was that significant change for you came when now a big corporate guy comes and knocks on your door and says he wants to be part or take over your thing? So, sorry, but Yep. Tell us the story on on the whole what happened well, next on the journey. At some point in the 2000s, I had joined my company with uh, let me get the sorry, you told me not to move around. But. That's all right. He, you know what? He disco done. He needs to de- to make, He needs to hustle while he's doing his no the the light the uh, lighting. Yeah, is that okay or the That's other fine. one? No, we're good, Donnie. We're good. Hold on. No, this way. All right, here we go. So. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, I was I was uh, partners. I had rolled my company into Insomniac, and that, you know, just like a lot of relationships, and you know, that went sideways. And so, I was looking at other options, and uh, I, I had, uh, with a group of other people, created a deck about kind of bringing a bunch of different companies together, which is something I had already been doing my whole life where I was working with all these other partners in other cities. And so, uh, and that's when I, somebody introduced me to Bob Silliman, which is the guy that had created, you know, what's, what is now iHeartRadio and also Live Nation and kind of told him about our plan to, to, to kind of get all these dance companies together and try, try to make them take it to the next level. Um, and that's when, yeah, that was kind of the birth of SFX. And this is, is SFX, is this pre to them buying Bport at that time? Yeah, yeah. No, I was like the first, I was the first one. So in, in our deck, we had Bport as one of the, as one of the targets. Okay, so what changes now from you putting this machine together and moving forward? Do you still keep the business the same way, but except now you're playing with bigger money, or do you have a big change happening? Because you're becoming a corporate, you know, real a real monopoly corporation. Um, at that point, it was kind of like go 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 because it was basically trying to, you know, but the initial start was trying to bring other people in, and it wasn't an easy sell. Um, but you know, luckily, you know, people started signing up, and nobody, a lot of these guys have been. You don't know how difficult it is to basically you know, to grow a business without any capital. So and, and people weren't really dispersing money to to promoters. What so you had to like basically keep on any money you got. Like I wasn't making any money. I was just basically making up to live. And so um, you know, to be able to to and so you just keep right reinvesting and reinvesting because as the scene's growing. Say one year you did, uh, you know, three million dollars in shows. Next year you do six million dollars. Where's the money coming from, right? It's like you gotta, you gotta keep just putting the money back in. So it just came to a point where if we wanted to grow, we needed to have some real capital behind us. Uh, you know, it takes a lot off your back when you're not putting up the money. See, nowadays 
you got these rich hedge funds coming in and buying record labels, uh, publishing companies, and they, they're seeing this money. But you're also now, in, and let's talk about it from a dinosaur standpoint. So you're working week to week to keep this machine going. And now you're like, damn, I got now this big corporate partner where I can have an infusion of some serious millions behind us to really take this. How do you get him to see this or the, all the whole group and go, we can make this work? What was the defi- definitive moment that, you know, hey, we got this blueprint. This is how it operates. Are you in? I think the main thing was everybody was in the same position as me. Like, they, you know, my wife is saying, um, hey, you know, you got to, what about the kids going to college and all this other stuff? You got to put money away. And, you know, I'm basically, well, I'm, I'm working on this. I'm building this out, building this out. So I think the main thing that was that, A, nobody really ever want, you know, there's like the inferiority complex of being a rave promoter where we were at one point, like the lowest, nobody wanted us, right? They tried to, they tried to put us in jail. Um, you know, we were, we were considered not cool. And now here we are, somebody wants us. They want to give us money. They want to give us security and they want to invest in the future with us. I mean, that was like the, that was the selling point. And if we do this all together, we can make it into something really big and really special. I mean, that was like the, that's like the original plan, but obviously things don't always go according to plan. That's the next question. <laughs> let me show, let me show everybody this picture. Look at Donnie at the boardroom. Oh yeah. Breaking it down to the SFX crew. So yeah, they base. I'll explain this one. Cause go ahead, Donnie. So we, it, this was very interesting because now you're working with like the top leaders from uh, the top companies like ID&T in, uh, in, you know, from Netherlands, the guy from the guys from tomorrow uh, land, the guys I mean, tomorrow world, the guys from Australia, Stereosonic, uh, the guys from Brazil. I mean, so you have uh, all these groups of people in the room. And I just remember this was like a big setup because the, the ID&T guys came in on the Friday and did like this, beautiful like video presentation they had work probably somebody had put hundreds of hours into it right and these guys are like on point they have all these great ideas they're talking about islands and hotels and all this shit that i'm i'm thinking about what if i can survive till the next weekend and so uh bob sillerman then after look making us all watch this video that was you know basically to and maybe to uh inspire us um, told us all to go home that night and come up with our own, uh, our own project, our own thought. Uh, of course, we all went out to Pasha, just got ripped up all night. Somehow I woke up early enough to make it to Walgreens, and I, that was my presentation. So I don't know if it was endearing or not, but it was, a, it was kind of like a, it was kind of a goof on that we had been set up on this. I was going to do my, I was going to have my own moon. So. Of course, that's what makes you, you, but you know, again, you're coming from a street mode and you sold this idea to them. So now you're working with the top promoters from Europe, you're working with top promoters from Australia. I mean, or should I say show, I'm not going to say promoters, let's say companies. Cause they're not just promoters. These are outfits, you know, that are coming in. Where is this beginning start? Because I remember around 05, 06, 
things took a big change with the EDM sound coming into America. And David Guetta had a big part with his sound beginning. Would you say that was the moment where you really saw this thing take off? You know, with, with I wasn't the- really, I mean, I, we saw that. I think when he first, I did like a couple of dates on the first tour and they blew out. But um, yeah, I mean, I just didn't, I didn't feel, I, I felt like we were still had a long way to go. I don't think it was until we moved, um, we moved EDC from San Bernardino into the Coliseum and we were doing, EDC had been doing about 10,000 people uh, for maybe, or 12,000 people since like 2001. So for maybe like, I can't remember what year it went into the Coliseum. So, but when we moved down to downtown LA and got 30,000 people, that was like the first really big where I was like, okay, this is, this is this could be a thing right because all of a sudden now you know you have a you know 10 to 30,000 people is a big jump right you know but there's some other things happening too around you at the same time so, we got? so you're doing your thing and then in Vegas the Hakkasan guy comes and gets turned away and decides that he's so angry that he got turned away. He wants to make a club to blow everybody away and bring in the best superstar DJs and create a whole thing in the mid-2000s around that same time. Right. I mean, I think this is like 2007, 8, 9 time frame. Yeah. And yeah, we I was actually doing show. I had done shows in Vegas. And it just was like there was not a real scene um, at the time. And I don't think people really believed that that it could happen there. And actually we had, um, I had been asked to come in on one of the clubs at, at the win. And I think we turned it down because it was like, Oh yeah, well that's, you know, nobody's got, that's not going to work. And of course, look how right we were. Um, you know, now it's like the epicenter here. Kind of just yeah, blew right. up everything. You were right. It does work now. Right. You're like, right. But look at the money they spent. They spent a fortune to bring everybody out there. From yeah, I mean, it changed the game. I mean, and I don't necessarily, I'm not, they got to do what they have to do, right? And so they're trying to get people, but it changed the game as far as like for the the ripple effect on what those, what the artists can make in Vegas. Um, I think it affects other other markets, right? Because like basically like the old touring model was an artist would come up and they would go and they would hit Nashville and Columbus and St. Louis. And, you know, this is like weekdays. And now they can, if they can make so much money on just playing two days a week or with their Vegas residency, they don't have to take dates. So it doesn't, you know, they don't tour as much and the other, the smaller markets suffer and their scenes suffer because they don't really have any talent. Now people can travel to Vegas and see the people, but, it's not the same anymore. So it, de- it definitely had a, it, it's good to get the, the eyeballs on all those people and make it be big, but there is a, there's definitely a, a bad part to it as well. Okay. So now we're going into the ends of the two thousands and you're still going and going the love affair with SFX. How is that going throughout the time? 
and iHeart and all that. Well, no, the iHeart was I had been already parceled off and sold in Live Nation, so this was like a totally new company. So uh, basically, you know, I was kind of thought that I would have a lot more involvement in the management of of the new company, and as they kept on, because uh, that was kind of where the, what I was promised, and so. But as it kept growing, um, the people that, the, you know, the guys that were in charge, you know, were taking more and more control and wanted to do it their way. So I kind of took a backseat to that. I was trying to learn by working with all the other promoters. I was still pushing it. They would trap. If they did something, if they screwed something up, they would call me and basically trap me out. And I would go to, um, they'd say, Donnie, we need you to go and go to, Amsterdam and you know talk good about us so anytime there was an issue they called me to be the cleanup man but they were kind of making their own decisions on the the way that running the business the way they wanted to and yeah a lot of mistakes were made um, and it wasn't as easy to kind of um, bring together the the main problem is is that they basically for, with some of these guys they gave them like fuck you money so when they pushed back on them and, and some of these other big promoters, when they pushed back on them, they basically were like, fuck you, I'm leaving because they had so much money. Well, explain that reasoning. Why would they be doing that kind of maneuver? What was going on at that time? Why did they pay people so much money? Yeah. Why were they doing the FU jobs to everybody? You know, because why, why cut your hand to, you know what I'm saying? Why cut well, it off? Well, what happened? So what happened was like nobody was really interested in dance music. They were people were talking about doing different deals and stuff, but there was no real money behind it. Once the new SFX came in and started offering people money, then you know that Live Nation got involved, AEG got involved because they didn't want to have they didn't want to have a new comp competitor in the market. So that's when everything started getting into hyper mode. So the offers went up. People were asking for more money. Um, to SFX needed to, to build out new SFX that needed to build out their company so they could take it public and and show growth and basically you know they wrote big checks to people that probably they should have done you know earnouts or something make these people stay on if you give somebody all their money up front and and then they can leave after one year and we lost like a lot of good promote good people like it was a big brain drain like in the first three or four years, I mean, that's a big problem for a company that spent that much money um, to acquire these brands. Do you think the public offering when they put it up on, you know, as a stock and everything, Wall Street was a good move or was that the, the death of it, the beginning of the death? I think, I don't know if it was a good move. I think that was always their play because that's what they had done with Live Nation uh, or with um, Clear Channel. So I think that was always, that was what they knew. Uh, I just think once, like once people looked under the, when, when you go public, then you're exposing yourself to people looking under the hood. So once that people started looking under the hood, people started like saying, hey, this company's, you know, it's not making any money. And it kind of, we, the problem is like we, they got in at the, like when everything was going up. And as soon as there was a downturn, that put pressure on, on the stock. And you, you also had a lot of people, you know, the, 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 the biggest problem with the SFX stock 
besides like the company not making any money, it was like people, the people shorting it. I mean, they were like, people were betting against the, the company to fail. So people oh. wanted to. Right. So that's where you make your money. That's where these other people make their money. They that's want this company right. to fail. They wanted to fail. So they they talking shit online or making writing articles and stuff. So yeah, I mean, they weren't wrong, but yeah, it doesn't help. So at that time, if I remember correctly, Bport goes up to for sale, and they sell out. I think it was either thirty million or fifty million. I don't remember. The number in my head is like fifty. Something I mean, like that. It could have been a combination of stock and cash. I mean, you never, you can't trust those numbers they put out there. Sometimes they're, they're you know, one person's saying a higher number for their ego, and that could be a lower number, right? Next staying a lower number for their, for so they don't have to pay more to somebody else. I mean, it was it was definitely a, a, a interesting. I learned a lot. And at that time, your gut feeling as this was all going on, were you thinking I better jump the Intrepid because the Intrepid hit the t- hit the uh, hit the no. uh, iceberg or what? Was no, you no, I saw people. All everybody else was jumping off, but um, you know, I had I had just switched my team from oh we're Insomniac and oh now we're at, you know we're leaving Insomniac we're SFX so. I couldn't really just keep on flipping over everywhere. So, uh, and, and you know, my name is on the company. So it, it, it could just, I couldn't walk away without that. So it just, it just didn't make any sense. So I was, I was there for the long haul and it was, it wasn't easy for sure. Those conversations weren't easy and having to be a part of them and, and, um, yeah, but I mean, I wasn't, I, I really never thought of leaving. Never thought of leaving. When did it end? Well, no, they, uh, oh, what, they was the, what was the procedure? That led well, give me like the real big synopsis of it. It was like go, 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 spend, 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 grow, grow, grow. Stock goes up, stock goes down. Uh oh, you know, we got now we got to stop spending, stop spending, cut, cut, cut. Stop. Stop! Uh, yeah, so, Red light! Stop! Right. So it was very confusing in that in that range, but we understood. And then, um, oh, we're in trouble. And then, okay, oh, we're bankrupt. And that's when everything kind of we hit the reset button. And it was, you know, it was hard. Like we had to go to. I think we had. Luckily, I I saw it coming. So we got all our we got all the money out the door. Like to, we were paying people the whole time. Um, we were trying to send an invoice, send an invoice, you know, uh, so people could get paid. And then anybody that we owed, that DDP owed my to, I said, listen, if they don't pay you, I'm going to pay you, right? So try to get it from them. But if they don't pay you, I, I owe you the money. I hired you. This isn't your problem. And so that kind of made it easy for us to, when, it, when we came out of bankruptcy, to basically, we just kept continuing business the same way. Did you do a, a chapter 11 or was it? I think, they, I think they did chapter 11. I can't remember what, it, I mean. It's like a restructuring. It's like, right. A- yeah. They re, well, um, yeah, I'm not really sure which one they used, which mobile. So, I mean, they did walk away. The problem is they had all this, uh, uh, they had all this debt and the debt service to the original investors. So, I mean, that was the, the, the vendors and stuff were people that they had to work with in the future. So I think most of those people ended up getting paid. It was more to walk away from the people that put up the money from, for the original 
payments to the promoters. What was the original guy's name again from SFX? I can't remember his name. I can see uh, it. Bob Sillerman. Bob. Okay. So what happened to him? Well, I mean, he ended up passing away a couple of years ago, but, but at uh, that time, at that, at that time. time, well, he had, he actually, from my understanding is he had an offer to basically that somebody was going to buy the company and he could have walked away with like, we could have, the company wouldn't go bankrupt, not at that moment. And he could have uh, walked away with like 30, $40 million. I don't know if this is, I heard it from somebody that was the one making the offer. So I don't know how real it is, but sounds pretty real to me. And that they had a deal in place and he came, Bob came back and asked for more money. And that sounds like something Bob would do. Um, that's just kind of how he rolled. But so, yeah, the, so the company went bankrupt. They had to, they removed him from like the CEO position. And these other guys came in that do, uh, it's called, it was a company called uh, Axelrod. Uh, I don't know what the um, Axelrod companies or something like that. And they, can, they buy distressed companies and basically, um, you know, basically build them back up and then sell them off. So that's kind of where we were. How long were you there till it, you said, I'm out? <laughs> no. So, yeah, it, I'm waiting to hear where your parents like, were. I was just hanging out. Um, so I had a five year contract. I signed that. And then I had another, I did another three year contract. So I think I was like kind of at the end of that. And uh, people were kind of circling around talking about, they were giving me, now they're starting to say, oh, actually, you know, we, they were giving me more responsibilities. They were giving me other companies to run. And so I started, we started doing that. And the, but the, at the same time, there were people circling around trying to, trying to buy off, buy some of the companies. And so I went to Andrew Axelrod, uh, basically the, the leader. And I said, hey, I just want to have first right refusal. If somebody tries to buy uh, DDP. So he gave that to me. And this was like December of 2019. So this is like right before COVID. So I had already started negotiations about getting the company back because somebody was actually offering on, on my company and some of the other ones or our company. So when COVID hit, like I, what was that? The day everything shut down, like we, all the shows shut down, like March 13th. Um, literally I already had the conversations going and, uh, you know, they started saying, we started talking, they started talking about basically right away. It's like, well, you know, we're going to have to probably, um, fire some people that can get unemployment. And I had tweeted something about that. Everybody would get, we had festivals on sale and I had tweeted that everybody was going to get a refund. And they, I called to the principal's office and they're like, you can't offer refunds. It's not your money. I was like, okay, well, I want to, I have to buy the company now. So literally within two weeks, um, I had signed the deal to get the company back. Really? Yep. April 1st of 2020. So I bought it back like, um, so wait, when you were bought out, before, how much can you disclose how much you would have been bought out for at the time? I can't. Um, there's some numbers out there that are wrong, but it was a. It was we, a had, 
Look, let me. We read numbers like this: 30, 40 million dollars. No, no, no. It wasn't that much, but it was like it was. No, I'm serious. That's what you read. I swear. Eight, eight figures, or and I got it for like ten cents on the dollar. So let's just put it that way. So I, um, I got a good deal. And came in at the fire sale. I came in like right at the beginning of COVID. So Lord help. Is it gave, I'll give you 10 cents. So I'll, I'll take that. I, didn't, I mean, they would like give it to me. I was like, right. nobody wanted it. They, they should have paid me. I'm going to take that pain away from you. I'll give you 10 cents on the dollar. Exactly. <laughs> That's kind of what went, how it went. You made Forbes magazine as one of the top guys in the game. Okay. So when you make Forbes, you had to have, get. You had to have some serious bank to make that deal back when you were bought out. I did good. I mean, I sold a company that was worth nothing. Zero. Lost like million. Yeah. Like that's for a multi, for a big, big multiple. So yeah, I mean, I got, I would do it again. It wasn't, I would do it differently, but I would sell the company. I would. show reasons why he's look at, look, look at the reason why he said, look what he, look what he bought back. He made this back again, and that's what I love about it. Look, look, look how great the stuff that this guy does the, the production work. The time, I mean, we're talking about going from I was in the street handing out flyers, please come to my party, to I got pyrotechnics now, brother. Look at my shit, it's hot, you know what I mean? Like, you know, in 10 cents on the dollar, awesome. People don't understand that, that, you know, how you went from the mom and pop guy to Mr. Corporate America. Yeah, well, I'm still mom and pop guy. I mean, basically, you know but yeah, I, mean. I did have to go through the corporate stuff. Um, I don't recommend it, but it, I, it was a. Why? Why, really, don't rec- why don't you recommend it? It's definitely they, it's a lot of time. I mean, I, I, it was a learning experience for us to and we, I think we did get better. I don't, you know, I think we got more organized and we do things a different way. Uh, we probably do things, but it's definitely a lot of your time is taken up by um, that they're just like nonsense work and meetings and paperwork and projections, stuff like budgets. Who needs a budget? <laughs> let's just see if we have money at the end of the show. And we, yeah, let's we, won't, we lost. If we have it, we want. That's how we used to do it on a paper napkin. Paper napkin, write some numbers down and hope for the best, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it is what it is at the end. Okay, so now, Donnie, you got to do a show now. A big ED- – you're doing EDC still? Are you still involved with that? No, no. That, um, so that you're was... out of all that stuff. So you're just Disco Donnie Presents now? Is that it? Correct. Okay, so if, if you were – explain to someone what that is involvement and that, that kind of – stress of doing an ADC or one of those big type of corporate level events. What are we, what are you dealing with? I just don't think it's not a, like my kids want to be like, Oh, we want to do what you want to do. And I'm like, no, you don't want this. Like, I don't want that for them. It's not a, it's like you, as a, as a human being, like you have to disconnect from reality. Like, because what we do doesn't really make any sense. Like to risk that much when so many things could go wrong, um, it's not. It's it's not a good you know. It, it waking up is it's not a good feeling. Um, so 
I mean, doing the show and making all those people happy and getting to the finish line, that's a good feeling. And that's why we do it. But the, everything in between is um, it's 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 not for a normal person. So you so you have something what we call Abby normal. I don't know what that I don't know what I call it. I call it like I call it Madaya. I mean, I just you just can't like be if, if you if, if the, the risk is so high and the What's reward the- is so low or, you know, it's like, why do, wait, then why do this? I don't know. This is what I do. I don't know what else to do. I didn't sign up for this part. I got to make big decisions about uh, tornadoes and coming and, you know, and canceling shows. And um, I didn't, I didn't sign up for that. I'm supposed to be like the, the little kid raver promoter. And now I'm in charge of all these, you know, I got 30,000 people that, I, you know, I'm, I need to protect them. Um, so it's just a different, it's a whole different ball game. The hell's it make it worth it then? What's the gratification? Making people happy. I mean, I like, I'm bringing all these people together. I got a whole team. We're doing good things, but everything in between, like if you think about it on a, if you think about it on a a level of, does it make sense? No. None Um, of it makes sense, right? It doesn't make any sense. So your kid says to your dad, Poppy, I want to be like you. You're like, no. <laughs> no. No. I don't want them to, I don't want this for them. Por qué? No trabajo? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, da, doctora. <laughs> yeah, be lawyer. Doctor. Oh, yeah. oh, wait, wait, wait. Like, 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 like in the Godfather, Senator Espinal. Right, right. No, I want you to be a governor, Espinal. I do not want you to be dad's crazy promoter, kid. Right. Yep. I, I've okay. Made, I've made it clear. Donnie, so what are you projecting now forward? So now we're back in this whole thing. What's the projections forward? Because I know you deal with all you guys. What are you thinking is the next move for you guys? I think we're getting like every like something we mentioned, touched on earlier. Everybody's kind of where these festivals were kind of basically – jack of all trades and you had five different musical styles and i think as people have gotten older we've kind of gotten more like and the scene has gotten more mature like europe and stuff so everybody's kind of getting in their lane and what they like to do so we're kind of concentrating on uh, although we do have some stuff where we're basically trying to i guess we're basically appealing to a, a, a throwing out a bigger net and appealing to more people uh the, you know, what I see the future is basically for like doing these boutique festivals that are, we're just talking to one person, these artist curated events where we're just, to, we're just going after this one group and instead of trying to be everything to everybody uh, and that, that way we don't have to, you know, we're not losing out. We're not building out these other extra stages that people don't even want to see or that somebody that will go see somebody on that stage wouldn't pay to go see somebody in this stage. So, I mean, I think that's the future for us and that's kind of where we're, we're landing and, and, and making waves. So what is the music that you're thinking is the next go-to for the United States? What do you think it is? Well, hopefully it's not, we don't even know what it is yet. Hopefully there's some 15 year old in the bedroom while we're wasting, while we're drinking beer here, um, you know, uh, making this music, right? So we're just piddling our thumbs and this guy's making the next music. So I'm, I'm, that's what we need, a new sound. Yeah, and that, what we're noticing overseas is, is that 
the disco and the 90s house music has made its resurgence back in a very big way. And the crowds are older. And I understand that, what you're saying as well. Over here, it seems to be a little bit different. You know, like some of it works in certain pockets, but not everywhere. Right. Yeah, I mean, then the big, big cities are a little more, you can do a little bit more experimenting in the Chicago's, LA's, the New York's of the world, right? I mean, now when you get down in the South, I mean, now they're going to, it takes a little time for everything to filter down there. Like filter from Europe, filter to, the, to New York, LA, Chicago, now filter down to us. So it's a, it's a learning curve. I mean, definitely the, the you, know, you can definitely feel the, the, the momentum on the house side. Um, but, you know, people in the United States, they don't commit to anything for, for very long. So they change their taste very often. So let's see how, hopefully that can stick. So we, always, we keep saying drum bass is coming back, but that's been a long comeback. Yeah, I haven't, I'm not sure about that. I can see house music because it's close to EDM, but it's not EDM because it's got the four to the floor feel. Um, and EDM felt like that was going on forever. It felt yeah. like, I mean, everything, every it's all cycles, right? So everything's gonna, it'll, everything's gonna cycle back in and back out. So that's just the way it, the, the, the music world works. And that's the thing about music. Do you, do you, you know, before I wrap this up, you know, the Dutch, I felt the Dutch manufactured a lot of those superstars. Like, they designed it to go a certain way. Blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, it was like the look. Everybody kind of looked the same. It was kind of like going from what we used to have, where it was an underground thing. It was more like Lamborghini-esque meets, you know, the hot. He's wearing Giorgio Mani. Do you feel like it's ever going to go back to an underground thing, or is it just going to stay more flashy, more Hollywood? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are underground things going on and um, in different places, so people are definitely running stuff like that. But, I mean, on the, on the main level, I don't think it ever gets back to that. I mean, there was only, that's only one. It, it, that's like the original thing, right? And then when people started coming, and that was like the the cool kids. And when when the scene started getting bigger, all the cool people left. Right. right? And I'm not saying that the people there's not cool people in it now, but that you know that was like a time and a place. And the people that weren't there, it's like what you said. You played at Studio 54, but you played at the end. You know, so wasn't the same as the original. Wasn't the same. It won't never be the same as the beginning. And you know, it's like it's not. It's not like some the old man saying, oh, uh, back in the day, I walked to school. Back in the day, when Studio 54 opened, you, they wouldn't compare to the month before they closed, right? Because the whole crowd had changed. And 100%. Four right. times already changed over. Right. So basically, that's kind of what, how I look at the, the old rave scene and to, to compare to now. And I, I mean, I'm glad that it got big. I'm glad it's not underground. Um, I'm glad more people are or going um, and people can do their own little people can do like a hundred person party and, you know, do a map point or whatever. There, there's still those things going on and illegal warehouses. That's still part of the scene, but that's it just, you don't have to do that anymore. That's, that was what we used to, that was, we used to get a hundred people do a map point, do a legal warehouse, but we did it because that's all we had. 
Um, so, but that's happening, but just uh, that, that's, I don't think it's going to be the, become like the big thing that is going on right now. So you mean the microcosm scenes, those small scenes will always be around. Yeah. There's all kinds of things going on that, you know, that you and I don't even know about, right? Like they don't invite an old man, me, they got their, you know, it's like, they got cool people going to it. Who, who wants grandpa rolling in there in his wheelchair? Um, you know, yeah, but you're not really, you know what? You're not really grandpa. You're not really. Well, come on. Hopefully not yet. But what I'm saying is you're still he's still actively working and doing great things. Come on. Walk and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing good. I'm doing good for my age. You're doing real good. Thank you. I'm glad we were all working and still going. I keep saying it. Thank God we're still here to talk about this because a lot of us are not here no more or they left the business a long time ago. Yeah. No, I mean, so it, I, I feel bad because a lot of people that put in a lot of time and built it all out, um, you know, they had to go and do other things. They, I know they wanted to be involved in the scene, but it just became a point where they just couldn't, uh, they couldn't feed themselves, right? So they had to go get jobs, like real jobs, not like this fake job that I got. Yeah, the fake job make a lot of money. No, uh, send it my way. I'm losing lots of money. Really? Yeah. Sure. Do you feel like you'll ever get it back where you were? Yeah, you have to. You have to. Is it is it the thing more about, you know, I always say this, winners are not quitters and quitters just don't stay around to win. I'm still building. I'm I'm building something. Are you on here. the winner? Are you on the winner side with the dream of projection that I can make this? I can make it. I can make it. I can turn it around. I'm on the right path. Amen. Amen. I need to hear that again. You're going to turn this around? Going to turn it around. Look at all the bad shit that's happened. And look where we're still here. So if I can get through that, if we can get through that, then we can do anything. So and That's right. And it's of all of us that are the original OGs that are going to make it work, right? Yeah. And we're still making a lot of people happy. So You heard it, people. He's making you happy. Make sure you take your credit card out and buy a ticket. And be happy. Turn it around. Come to his Disco Donnie Presents in every city in the Midwest. If you go look, Disco Donnie Presents is doing stuff all over the place. It's crazy the amount of shows this guy does, and he never even leaves his house. <laughs> from the, I'm doing it from the bar. Right. I'm serious. It's like crazy. This guy's got how many shows you got lined up now? I mean, I saw like sixty shows, something like that. Um, we were we got to like a thousand a year before Christmas. I mean, uh, before Christmas, before COVID, COVID Christmas. Um, but uh, I think we're down to like seven hundred now a year. So how many shows that per week? It just depends. Like if you're, it's Halloween. You know, there's there could be eighty shows in one in one week. You know, I mean, or eighty shows in a month. Or if it's August, the dog days of August, it could be 30 shows a month. So it just, it moves around. Yo, man, you're Sosa. You're like the guy Sosa. We call you. I need a shipment. Where are we sending the shipment to? You got like 80 spots going on at the same time. That's crazy. Yep. How do you keep control of that, bro? How do you keep your mindset that everything's control, It's controlled chaos, basically, so... Um, no, I have a great team and we have a good system and we're, we're improving it every day. So, uh, hopefully one day we'll master it.
but now I have like good partners. And so uh, definitely been building it. I mean, it started off small and I've just built it out piece by piece. So it wasn't overnight. Can you thank SFX for any, you know, the corporate side of kind of, even though you said it was mundane parts and all the graphs and bullshit you have to deal with on day to day, but can you thank having that training to do this now? Yeah. I mean, I, uh, like I said earlier, man, that was, yeah, like the contracts and the legal stuff and the insurance. And so a lot of, we got a lot of relationships that we use right now that came through SFX corporate office and that, and so, and we could be able to continue to work with those people. So there's definitely, um, there was definitely a learning process through that and doing things the right way instead of trying to cut corners. And, and so, uh, you know, getting contracts signed and making sure the insurance is paid and everything else. So definitely trying to do things the right way. It's definitely was a, it was a help. And those young kids that are watching this show, um, that are the next up and coming bedroom superstars that can possibly become headliners. How do they get to themselves to be seen by you or your team? What, what, where's that? It's hard. I mean, there's the, there's different layers to this, right? So people send me music all the time, but I'm not the, I'm probably not the target audience. So it's like, it's almost like a, and I have, I, I can barely, like my wife probably texts me like a, 10 things to do while I'm on this, uh, having this conversation. Right. So I came in, I came and run my own life. Now I've got to listen to new music. It, it just, but I mean, they just got to keep putting, when somebody comes to me and asks me for advice, I'm like, you just got to keep putting it out there. There's forums now and there's people, there's managers that have people working for them and they're looking for new music and looking for new artists. And, and it's, so there's an ecosystem that, is, that has developed uh, where uh, these people get find this artist, they sign them to a contract. Not that might not go anywhere, but now this person becomes your like your uh, you know carnival barker or whatever. So this person's saying, oh, the, he's got a manager. The manager's selling it to the agent. The agent's selling it to me, right? Like this guy's going to be big. You got to listen to this. So it goes through these different layers. So you just what I always say is just keep putting yourself out there. It might not be perfect, um, uh, but you know, if you if you really want to do it and you have the drive and, you know, don't take no for an answer. Mm-hmm. Just keep putting throwing yourself out there. Keep, you know, it, it, it's, it's painful to get rejected. Nobody likes that. But, you know, you just got to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. If you really love it and, you know, it, it takes a little bit of luck. And if you have the talent, somebody will eventually come along and, you know, and and reward you. Everybody needs to start, and you started a lot of people's careers, Disco Donnie. Send me a check. Come on, Donnie. Take a bow. Come on. You did it. You did it, Donnie. You took something from a one-man show with the accordion, right, with the accordion, made it into a massive business for people to say and actually to copy. So you got to take some credit for some good and bad. I'll take some credit, but a lot of people helped me, and I got – I worked really hard, uh, but I had a lot of help, and a lot of people came before me. Um, I had a lot of luck. So, I mean, just put it in that pot and cook up that gumbo, and here we are. And on that note, you heard that, people. Make your own gumbo. 
Don't take no for an answer. Always listen to yes. Always when you hear no, that means a yes. There's always a chance to crack that door open. Yep. Donnie Disco Donnie with his company, Disco Donnie Presents. We wish you all the luck. Hopefully, you'll see me working on one of Donnie's 80,000. See, he's not taking no for an answer. So he's listening to what I'm saying. So I hope so. I hope sooner or later I'm we'll back you, on Donnie. I'll see, soon. I'll see you soon. Donnie, we love you, man. And thank you, exactly. everyone. Donnie, stay with me here. Thank you, everyone, for True House Stories this week. We'll be next week. With another guy as well from the L.A. scene, Mark London is coming on to talk about L.A. So we're touching now. We're going from the Midwest. We're going to the West of America. Good night, everyone. Thank you again for tuning in. Catch us all next week.